This week, we're talking with Eli, Sean, and Marisa from The End of Time and Other Bothers. It's a fabulous conversation with some really lovely people, and I know you'll dig it. We're talking about spin-offs, improv versus game mechanics as a driver of story, being the only grown-up at a table of goofballs, and why it is that stories are so important. All of that's just ahead, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Will and Ellie are still out this week, recovering from a blissfully received fiction track at Podcast Movement. I can't wait to hear all about it from them, but from everything I've been reading online, I have every reason to be thunderously proud of them. Fabulous work, you two. Now, on to this week's show. I had the great pleasure of talking with Sean Howard, Eli McElveen, and Marisa King, who are part of the team that creates The End of Time and Other Bothers, which we featured last week. Eli and Sean are also both producers on this show, as you may remember from my having read their names in the credits for the past, you know, forever. Uh, they're also people I feel like I know pretty well, but something changes when you interview a person, I think. You, you can learn unexpected things about your friends, and it's always such a privilege to learn from friends. Marisa I didn't know nearly as well, and it was a pleasure to start to get to know her. This interview contains minor spoilers for some of the events of The End of Time and Other Bothers, so if you mind that, catch up on the show. However, if you're ready to learn about how the sausage gets made, man, let's dive right in and learn the story behind the story. Here's Eli, Marisa, and Sean. So, hello! Welcome to Radio Drama Revival! Yay. Thanks! <laughs> Marisa, lovely to meet you! Lovely to meet you! Uh, so... Eli and Sean, should we should we get going? Should we just yeah. jump into it? Sure thing. So I I think I know the story of how the two of you met, right? Like, didn't you meet on a Usenet forum? Is no, that right? It was, it was, it was an old BBS. It was, yeah. it, was, it, was a, it was a chat, like twenty years over twenty years ago. Right, Sean, were you live were you living in in Texas then, or had you already moved to Canada by the time the two uh, of you had? I was married to a woman and illicitly <laughs> on a chat, a gay chat board. I do not know this. Yeah. Yeah. Great story you... for us to start with. Our premiere. Finally, what? I get onto RDR. <laughs> I've been waiting my entire we life get into to the get hard this hitting show shit. on RDR. We're gonna... Sean, you've been credited as an associate producer for the past six months. <laughs> and now, and now I'm going to talk. Yeah, I was, I was married and uh, sneaking onto a gay BBS. So they were doing a meetup at the Toronto Zoo because a bunch of them were from the Toronto area. And uh, so I drove out from Buffalo. I lied, said I had a business meeting. Oh, man. Yeah. I was going through a lot of challenges. I was coming out of the closet potentially for the first time, but I wasn't out yet. I was married. And uh, so I drove up to the Toronto Zoo and it was a BBS gathering. There was no like sign or like most of the people weren't out. So there was no like official way to meet anyone else who was there for the meetup. So I just sort of stood there for a while. And then I noticed there were two guys sort of standing there awkwardly. Uh-huh. And I just had to be like, are, are you here for a meetup? And, and anyway, so funny. Yeah. That was sort of how it went. Yeah, so it was, it was very awkward. And we uh, we met and uh, I knew who you were, Sean. Uh, you didn't know who I was at the time. Well, it says who knew what. He knew who, my handle and he knew. I did not know Eli's handle. Man, that's wild. So that yeah. was how the two of you met yeah. initially. Yeah. yeah. So the way it went is we were at the zoo and as one group 
we would slowly grow as someone would recognize someone and go, hey, are you, you're here for the meetup? We're the meetup. And we would slowly grow in size. And then one group spotted another group and realized we're all there for the meetup. And so both groups were meeting and it was very Canadian. We all stood in a line and we shook hands one at a time. And I remember this giant man, like just giant, like seven foot tall, big boned, shakes my hand, steps aside. and just It's like an unveiling of Eli. And that's how I saw, first saw Eli. Yeah. Yeah, I think you told me the sanitized version. <laughs> well, you know, we're on the air. Right. <laughs> what a perfect time to tell the unsanitized. <laughs> but yeah, uh, like six months later, we were both moving into a friend's basement in Toronto. <laughs> yep. So meeting Eli, you just sort of knew immediately. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We kind of pair bonded <laughs> instantly and uh, yeah. Like penguins at the zoo? Kind of. Yeah. Gay penguins (laughs) at the zoo. Nice, nice. Gay penguins at the zoo. Yeah. I got you, baby. Good get. Marisa, how did did Sean and Eli enter your life? Um, Eli had gone to high school, I believe high school, with uh, my then boyfriend, Julian, who plays Magnus and Alba Salix. And and so I guess we went out for dinner one night. We went to, you had a basement apartment. Full of uh, bouncy kittens. With the little kittens. I have my kittens. Yeah, that were rescued. So the connection was Eli. Eli and I both knew Julian. And then Eli turns up with Sean and we all went out for dinner. And yeah. I think that was, gosh, what, 15 years ago? Yeah, she hasn't been able to get rid of me since. Because uh, <laughs> Marisa, you, Julian, Carter, and several of our other friends w- all went to York for, for uh, theater. That's right. Yeah, that's the big connection. Yeah. That was the origin of it. And then, and then Marisa, you were then part of the, the same theater troupe. So to like, catch everybody up and make sure everybody knows you play Parabelle and Alba Salix – you're you're also an axe and crown, of course. That's right. Like what how how far back does the the core theater ensemble that is at the heart of Alba Salix go with you and these these fellas? Like all the way back, back to school? I mean, uh some of them. Yeah. You'd you'd uh, like directed and I don't know if you'd acted with them, but you'd you'd certainly uh, been like stage manager with with Julian and Carter when they were doing fringe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Carter and Julian were the York connection for sure. And then the other people who came on board, Alba Salix, were people I'd done community theater with. And uh, Eli and Sean had both worked with me as designers. Eli is sound designer. Sean is lighting designer. Um, they came into the fold that way. And so when Eli said he had this project, Alba Salix, I said, well, I know some good actors that we could try out. Mm-hmm. And that's how we brought in, you know, Olivia and Barb, because yeah. I'd done shows with Barb. So it was really it was really fun. It was melding these two communities together. So, yeah, the first table reads around our kitchen table, coming up with names. Marisa and I thought of Barb, I think, pretty much at the same time yeah. as the lead for Alba. Um, yeah, she's been, she's probably been involved from the very beginning. I was going to ask how, how Mike got folded in then to the uh-huh. ensemble. Oh, wait, you're talking about the unnameable Mike. <laughs> Is he persona non grata now? What did he do? <sighs> what does he always do? Have you listened to any episodes? <laughs> no, I'm coming in cold. Uh, Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the end of time and other bothers. I was late to the Taz bandwagon. Um, we were at PodCon 1, and we were riding in an elevator. It turns out with Half of Spirits and Travis McElroy. And when we exited, uh, Julia from Spirits was like, 
that was Travis. And I'm like, Travis who? <laughs> like, I had no clue who the sure. Mac- McElroys were. Uh, I quickly fell into listening to Adventure Zone. Didn't do anything else in my life for about a month. I just listened to every episode. Just um, marathon listened to Marathoned it through. So at this point, we had Alba Salix. We had the Accent Crown. And it was a difficult time. We were, we were both trying to figure out work and life and whether we could commit to doing audio full-time. PodCon was a big moment for us. And I basically went down this rabbit hole of analyzing live play shows. So um, you can go into more of that later. But basically, it came out of it. And after a month and a half, I walked up to Eli and I'm like, I'm starting another show. And he was like, what? <laughs> And I'm like, and it starts in two weeks. And he just shook his head and put it down on the table. That's just life with Sean. And uh, my idea was to, to I wanted to bring in someone with improv experience because I wanted to use comedy improvisation. So I wanted a, like a, a really good comedy improviser. Uh, I wanted someone that was more of an actress who would live the character, bring it to life. Um, so the first one was Carter. The second one was Marisa. It was top of my mind. So it was Carter and Marisa. And then I wanted someone who was really funny, um, was interested in comedy improv, um, but who came at it from the gaming side. So had played a lot of live, like not a lot of live plays, but played a lot of role-playing games. And so that was Michael Howie. And so that was my idea. But there were some challenges to overcome. Carter had never really played D&D since maybe he was a kid. Um Marisa wasn't sure if she wanted to play it <laughs> ever, right? And and Michael was just starting to get into improv, but you know, he he's pretty open about the fact that he has some anxiety issues and so I wasn't sure how so so I was it was a delicate balance at first where I had to like introduce everyone, start playing a campaign together and then sort of feel it out. Um and I pretty much instantly knew once everyone got along, that this was yeah, the table. Yeah, we did a test session. We'd been running, uh, Sean had been running a D&D 5th edition campaign with a few friends, including Mike. And that was that was going pretty well. Um, God, what I would pay to be a part of that campaign. <laughs> Come on up. And then and then All we right. uh, then we had Marisa in as sort of a test and and uh, later Carter and, and they gelled instantly. They yeah. were throwing complete chaos into the mix. Well, Carter was. Yeah, so that's how the table formed. So let's let's go back to. So I, I actually want to go all the way back to Axe and Crown for just a quick second because you you told Sarah Ray Warner in an episode of Right Now that Sean, you were walking past Eli's computer during you know like a an Alba hiatus, like a multi year hiatus, and you saw the stats had like grown and spiked for Alba, and you realized you had to get back to that world. And then Eli, you went on like a writing cruise, right? Was that for Axe and Crown? That was uh, that was uh, where Axe and Crown started. Yeah, on on the we had we were driving back from uh, here now in Kansas City and came up with the seeds of the idea. And like a m- month later, I think I was I was on the uh, writing excuses cruise, and that was it's been a huge benefit to my writing journey, I guess, just listening to their their podcast. And so yeah, I spent most of my nights hunkered down in a in the pizzeria on the ship writing the first drafts of the Axon Crown. Yeah, Eli came back from the cruise with the the start of the Axon Crown. Yeah. I, I'm asking about Axon Crown because I feel like 
what that spin-off did is kind of give you permission to expand the Alba Salix universe, you know? And, and I, I want to talk to you about your rationale behind why make an actual play instead of a traditional audio drama like Axe and Crown. And I, I assume, because <laughs> you were, Sean, because you were saying you're going to have like a, I, I understand that there's going to be like a big explanation as to why, right? Like, I, I understand that it's it's a more lightweight mode of production or ostensibly seemed at the outset like a more lightweight <laughs> mode of production. Yeah. Um, But I, I also want you to think about, like, why did you choose to set End of Time in this existing world, right? Like, you did this interview with the Fantasy Inn. And Sean, you said you questioned the decision to set it in the Albaverse sometimes because you and Eli built out all this world building and then you've used, in Eli's words, almost none of it. For, for EOT. You're just set on making me cry on air, aren't you, David? Don't cry. I love you. Don't cry. I know. I love you too. Okay. Ah, uh, wow. Okay. So first of all, the entire relationship of Sean and Eli, the creative relationship of Sean and Eli can be boiled down to this very simple thing. Sean is trying to simplify shows, get them out the door faster, and Eli turns everything into this fantastical, albeit amazing production that takes 10 times as long to produce as we predicted. And, and, and to Eli's credit, like the things we're most called out on, the sound design, the custom music in every production of anything we touch is phenomenal. It's a great touch. But I have an, a very intricate, almost as involved to produce as Alba um, offshoot called The Axe and Crown, which we're very proud of. Um, but the, quickly it's, it's grew a smaller from, cast and there's fewer locations and that's about all you can say. That's about all you can say. <laughs> right. Same sound design. It, it ended up bigger than we wanted. Whatever. So... But but that was sort of that journey was to get something into the marketplace to be like, hey, listeners, we have something else for you. Um, We're and still it gave here. Us, right. And it allowed us to launch our Patreon, start working on Alba Season 2, um, rally everyone. Uh, we learned a lot. It was good. So when End of Time came up, the idea of uh, doing a live play, like the producer side of me was just so giddy. We just sit around a table we don't have as large of a cast. Uh, we can produce these faster, um, right? So I sort of saw that ability to create something that had less hours per finished hour. So, so that was part of the, the, the hope with that product. We still have less hours per production hour on End of Time and Other Bothers than we do our other shows, but it's not the factor that I'd hoped for. It's still a significant amount of effort that Eli puts into every episode. Custom music for every episode almost. Um, always custom sound, sound designs. You know, it changes when we move location. Um, pretty intensive. Uh, so why place it in the same universe? Eli, I'll let you in now. Uh, well, it's – we wanted to, to kind of – build on what we had before. So we had this existing story world that we were now uh, creating a spinoff in. Uh, why not extend it? I mean, it's it's already a fantasy world. Uh, it would be a good fit for a, a funny uh, live play. The, uh, the trick comes just because you're potentially constraining the imaginations of your players and they're, they're at worst, they're kind of treading too carefully because they don't want to say something that's not in your canon. The, the problem is that that's gone away. Like as we've moved more towards embracing comedy improv techniques around the table, like I don't think those questions, Marisa, what do you, I don't think we spend a lot of time anymore going, can we say that after Bazooka, 
right? Yeah, and we'll get, we'll get to Bazooka. Five. <laughs> but but after Bazooka, like, Marisa early on used to stop the table. I'm like, guys, th- this can't happen in this world. That doesn't really happen anymore. I'm I'm about to destroy the Alba world. Like, the risks that putting it into the world created might be bigger than we expected. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd written down, you know, how canon is other bothers for Alba, and is that even a productive question? Uh, what I can tell you is season three of Alba will make nods towards what's happening in End of Time and Other Bothers. Yeah, we were we were just wrapping up some of we were wrapping up the the crossover where a character from Alba shows up in Other Bothers just as we went into the studio to record. So we did not know all the things that were about to happen in Other Bothers as we hit the studio to record the scripted show. But next season we will. Yeah. Will that character, you know, bear scars from their <laughs> they might long ago encounter with those characters? We we dropped we managed to drop a little hint in because uh, they had been in for the first part of their their tenure, which lasted three yeah, episodes. So, yeah, we are in the we were in booth for Alba season two after we'd recorded one of the crossovers. Yeah. So we, we were able to make a little bit of a nod. And they stuck around for another, another are we, session. Are we going to be honoring the, the spoileriness of that? Uh, it's Magnus. Magnus is unscarable, if any character is. <laughs> so. <laughs> and, and so he gets something to brag about in the uh, closing moments of season two. Yeah. Sure. Just drop it into a conversation. Will will you get to recycle some of that world building for Alba Salix, Nax and Crown, like the world building that you've done for, you know, the world of Farloria? Maybe. Like Eli actually started doing a thing that was really cool that I don't, it didn't really get a lot of attention from the fans, so I don't think we've focused on it. But Eli started writing another storyline from the future of Steadfast, so the future of the Alba world, far, where, far in the future, where the characters from Other Bothers originate. So Other Bothers starts way in the future, as you know, and then everyone is pulled back into Alba time, and so Eli has started writing like basically a short. Novelette, novella, 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 um, and he put out the first chapter as a Farlorian Friday because every Friday we right we give something back to our patrons. Um, so he did do a first chapter, and it was really interesting seeing some of the way that we're, he's using the world. Um, so we might see stuff like that, um, but we don't really know about the other. Um, we spent a lot of time trying to make sure the story that I wanted to run and End Time and Other Bothers would fit in the Alba world. However, I have the table that I have, so we have, I've quickly given up on any plans that I ever once had (laughs) with where this story is going to go. It helps that that uh, Alba itself is fairly freewheeling. It's it's light and and comic and no one's really counting on it to be hard science fiction-y kind of uh, adherence to technical canon and stuff and now there's bazookas <laughs> yeah i want to get to that but i want to i want to draw marisa back into the conversation hello um marisa i could you tell me about the process that you and the other players went through to develop your characters right because the the character of darcy has a secret that gets revealed midway through the show which is that she's a, a were morph mm-hmm. she can turn into multiple animals but primarily an enormous were porcupine <laughs> Yes. Now that's 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 on your character sheet. I can see it on the website. But did yeah. the other players know that when you started playing? No, no. Only okay. Sean. I think I shared it yeah. with Sean that that was happening. No, I don't think any of us knew anything about each other when no. we started. We didn't share 
even Carter and I who lived together <laughs> didn't share uh, what we were going to be. So, uh, yeah, we created them all separately. Yeah, I, I worked one-on-one -on -one with each of them. So Marisa came to, you came to the table with a pretty interesting idea already mm -hmm. for Darcy. Yes, I, yeah, I wanted someone who had some kind of darkness to her and something she was struggling with. And uh, yeah, that was, I think, the morphing came in. And was this your first role-playing game? Like, tell me about your resistance to the form. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. So when uh, it was explained to me that people were going to sit around a table and make up <laughs> and make up stories, I don't know, make up a world and you're supposed to play in it. I couldn't get my head around it. I thought, so there's no script and we're just sitting around a table and there's not even any action figures or anything. And, and this just all we make it up in our head and you and roll and, gonna, you, and, and you we're going to record it and we're going to well and you roll some dice because I was right. just trying to get my head around role playing games to be oh, right, right, right. so that seemed very odd and then Sean brought me in for this test game where I first met Michael and I think Stephen and Eli were playing it and uh, I thought oh boy how's this going to go and I got to play a gnome I believe uh -huh. and it was I, fantastic she was awesome it was I so much fun I was completely seduced by it oh. and uh, I think Michael got on my good side by the, he was playing a barbarian. And the very first thing he said to me was, who is this garden ornament or something like that? Because I was playing, it was, it was just so great. He's like, why, why is the garden ornament talking or something like that? Uh -huh. And I laughed and laughed. So anyway, so that game convinced me that I enjoyed role playing. But then when Sean said we were going to record it and it's a lot of pressure, right? You're suddenly being recorded. You feel like you've got to bring these characters to life in a way that's going to entice the fans and move the story along and the story you have no idea where it's going. So I do remember the very first time we sat down to record it, I felt a lot of pressure, which if yeah. fans are really listening, you could probably hear in my very first words ever in EOT, just the weight of I'm moving along. I can't remember <laughs> what I say, but there's a lot of nervousness there. Yeah. And, and I mean, with that, like, Sean, there's so much trust that you have to put in the player's like, I, I know that this moment is now kind of notorious, but I keep thinking back to Carter's choice to give Blatt a soul-bounded weapon. And what is that, episode four, episode five? Something like that. Um, four, I think. Reginald, the, the demon, is gaining oh. on him, saying, like, call your weapon, and Blatt stammers, and at last says, bazooka. And you could have said, as the GM, like, no, come on, Carter, for real, pick pick a D&D &D weapon. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I was so mad when he did that. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, I just heard him say, but and you know, we're all expecting, you know, sigh the sword. Uh, I don't know, bow and arrow. And he says that, and you just should have seen the look. I, in fact, I think I stopped the game. You did. I said, no, you can't. That's not a weapon you can use. But to Sean's, <laughs> and we backed it up. Yeah, and we started but to again. Sean's and credit, well, how did you react? Um. It was funny. Marisa stopped it, said no. And I was like, part of me was a little relieved when Marisa did it. I was like, okay, good, because I'm not ready for bazooka. And then we backed up the scene. We just start, we backed up one line, just did it again, didn't say anything. And of course, Carter says, bazooka. <laughs> and I was like, yep, it's now canon. We're going forward. And I just remember Eli putting his head down on the table yep. in the back, because that was the first time we'd broken the rules of the Alba world. I don't know about that. <laughs> One of the first times we broke it was it was the the first of many yes uh, big ones yeah and and I can I can point to certain episodes where the just 
the, the world just broke open a little further. Yeah. So as far as how as I went for it, it's okay. So here's what I did. I actually um, sat down when I was trying to think of how to create other bothers. And I was just working on this because I'm doing a presentation at uh, Podtails. Podtails? I love Podtails. Podtails in Boston. I'm going to be doing a presentation. So I was working on finding some of my old notes. And I had spent a lot of time listening to The Adventure Zone. And what I quickly – I mean, let me back up. I wanted to take um, – a live play game and up the production values significantly, right? No mic in the center of the table, professionals around on the mics. But but then I wanted to figure out, well, what else? Like, what is going to be, like, I, what what's going to make this ours? What's the story we want to tell and how do we want to tell it? And I remember the, oh, I remember the moment in, it's probably balance, the arc, balance the arc, when I realized that the Adventure Zone table was using comedy improv techniques, and I remember just stopping and go flashing back to college and improv and being like, I get it. I get why their story is so engaging. And so that became one of the cornerstones. I wanted more of that. I wanted everyone at the table to be practicing. So so to answer your question, when he sent Bazooka that second time, I realized this is my chance to say yes. You had right? to say yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Th- that's the that's the moment that really stood out to me where I was like, oh. This is an improv show. Because if it had been a more traditional actual play, I would have heard you as the GM say, okay, all right, come on. Right. You know? And but I'm not saying that that's not a, not a correct impulse. I, I think both decisions are valid within a, a yeah. given context. But it really suggested something. A different principle was in play. 100%. And it's really fascinating to watch the change between episode one and episodes 20, where now it's not even me doing the NPCs anymore. The entire table will step in at any moment and become someone or something to help the story move. Yeah. Um, there's there's a particular episode where um, Blatt is traveling on his own and the other characters they are sidelined, but everybody at the table is taking turns setting the scene for Blatt taking on the role of the the NPCs and it that was just magic for me and that that was something that we've just kept ever since and that started as a game right like i'd say hey everyone let's you know you need offers in improv so we'll just write out some offers and then we'll just play a game around the table just you get handed the card pick one at random and you're up next um but now it's become fluid i think now i see episodes where there'll be a pause like when you came in as the little old lady mm-hmm. in 25. 25, by the way, I think is one of our- I love 25. I think the table, it's one of the table's favorite episodes, 25. Mm-hmm. Nothing happens in 25. <laughs> there is no plot movement in 25. It's true. But I remember when suddenly there was just a pause and Marisa just came in as this little, beautiful little old lady that was so accepting of, of Egerton. But to just interject for a minute, to go back, I have to say that um, related to the bazooka moment, Sean just has this incredible ability to to say yes to so much of what we do, but not yes and then pausing for five minutes while he thinks of what the repercussions are. He's just right on top of it. And I've often sat here in awe just watching him acknowledge what we're doing as players and accept it. Whereas I think a lot of GMs, and as you say, um, it's the right impulse, would just say, you know what, that's not the trajectory we're taking, let's back it up. Sean almost never does that. And it's this its this amazing fluidity that gives to us as players to keep moving forward. But 
he just really uh, gives a sense of trust around the table uh, that we can throw things out. But I, as I say, I'm just also amazed at his improvisational skills to take what we give him and create more from it. It's incredible to watch. Marisa, can you tell me what it's like to be the only player who's determined not to break the game? <laughs> It's so frustrating because I think I come across as the unfun one. I said to Carter the other day, you know, you guys make it so I never get to have fun because I have to keep fixing your mistakes. (laughs) Because honestly, if you don't have a character moving the story forward, I think it really bogs down. And sometimes they just they just love to do little comedic scenes that could go on forever and ever. Yeah, Marisa has. Her timing watching at the table is amazing. How you will step in and just take a situation. What I love that Marisa does is she steps in to move it forward without also denying anything that's happening. So my favorite example of that is Mumsy. Oh, yeah, Mumsy. So we've got two ice trolls that Blatt has clearly set up to to (laughs) run to their death, to run shouting happily and merrily to their death. And Marisa steps in as their mother. And my first reaction was like, oh, what's going to happen here? But Marisa does not stop them from running to their death. <laughs> I she, try. <laughs> she wants to make sure they brought their lunches. And <laughs> it was a beautiful moment. Well, what was so great about that is then just by being mumsy, I started to really care about those ice trolls. Oh and I was so upset when that first, when Mike runs to the yeah. end and you just hear him go, Ooh! And I was very saddened by yeah. that. And then you started to really care about all the NPCs, which is which is great, really. Yeah. And uh, she gets a nice little kind of denouement afterward, too, yeah. which uh, we just sort of did spontaneously and it turned into the a scene in the next episode. Yeah. I think we did it as a mid-roll, in fact. What was it? The union meeting, right? Yeah, yeah it was the union the meeting. mid-roll union. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Slash wake. Yeah. <laughs> that was also really a challenging episode because I was madly trying to work to accept all offers at the table, yet also bring the party together. It can be really hard sometimes when you're in the the seat, like the GM seat, and but you don't have control. It's not about, right? Like often a game master, it's about power and control. Like whether, no matter how you try to wrap it, it's like, I say what what is works. I say if that succeeds or fails, I make the decisions. I, you know, um, and so when you're, when you're playing a GM role where you're not doing that, my job is to accept, make it more real, and then figure out the consequences very quickly. So when the whole thing was happening, I was, I'm also, there's a part of my brain that's still trying to get Darcy and Egerton back, uh, so it, I don't know, it, it's sounding like I only am able to give part of my brain to any, um, but yeah, I'm I'm all I'm in the pro Celine camp, 100%. David. <laughs> yeah, because I think what people forget, I even forget when I'm listening to it, is that you're you, Sean, are playing all these NPCs, so you're in the scenes with us, uh, creating the reality. And I think we all forget that another half of your brain has to be thinking, okay, as as the game master of this, what's happening next? What's happening on the grand scale? But that completely goes out the window when you're Snagle or something. Yeah, I just yeah. think, oh, he's Snagle. So it's it's an amazing ability that I'm pretty sure oh, I thanks. could not duplicate. By by thinking about the bigger picture, you mean panicking. I'm yes, in a panicking. constant state of panic. Oh, Pan- panicking very professional. <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, okay, this scene's going well. What the frig am I going to do next? Yeah. 
So, so the show lists these four key ideals, right? One, have a super fun time. Two, listen fully. Three, empathy first. And four, be inclusive. And Alex Hensley mentioned these in an interview they did with you on Audio Drama Rama. And, and this isn't really a question. This is more just sort of like a broad, like, wibbly statement. I've, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about, about violence in role-playing games. And I keep on thinking about the origins of Gygax-era Dungeons and Dragons, how it was based on war games with miniatures and tape and charts to estimate, like, ordnance impacts and whatever. And (laughs) these games, like, by their very design, anticipate violent conflict. And I know that those aren't, like, personal values for any of you, but we tolerate or enjoy sometimes violence in fiction. Um, And I I, kind of just want to hear your thoughts on system design modeling conflict resolution in game and how you live your values throughout the production process. I'll start. Probably An turn easy over question. To Marisa. Yeah. Just a softball. Um, <laughs> so I was listening to the adventure zone, right? I loved it. Um, and it was very early on. It's the first, the Gerblin. It's the very first thing where they have to go down in the caves. They're, I forget what module they're playing an actual module to start. Yeah. And um, one of the players who I know, Spouses to love animals, but in the game, picks up a wolf and he throws it into the fire. Why'd you throw my favorite wolf in the fire? Yeah. And and I remember in that moment going a couple of things. First of all, I had this horrible spasm in my heart. I didn't like it at all. Second, I remembered playing D&D as a youth in, uh, in college in all these years and we constantly battled creatures, constantly hurt animals, because all we basically did the numbers. I think it's over a third of the dungeon manual, or it's over two thirds. I can't remember right now. Michael Howie did the research. Are all month? They're all creatures. They're all animals that have been monsterized in in the D and D monster. In manual, the D and D monster those, manual. Right? So I realized in that moment that a that's how you. I've always played the game, and b I realized that my values have changed. So when we brought this table together, one of the things we started doing was talking about the values. And I'll be honest with you, I I wanted to minimize any, I didn't want to kill animals. Um, That was sort of something I was coming in with based on that experience. Um, But but when we brought this table together, we went further than that. And, And I didn't expect that right away. I thought, we'll just not harm animals. And it was really interesting to have the conversation happen at the table about what does that mean? to not harm animals. And we have two vegans that are at our table. Um, uh, Eli and I are vegetarian and, and Carter's vegetarian, but we, and, and we, we quickly uh, realized that we wanted to draw the line at no animal harm. Um, and so that is something we set forward to do, to have a game where you don't have to deal with that. You don't have to eat and see hear people eating animals. You don't have to hear people killing animals. You don't have to hear people, whatever. We just want to create a world where that didn't happen. Um, Interestingly, that that doesn't 100% align with 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 stuff we've written in the Alba universe in the past. Oh, for sure, yeah. That like your character Marisa in uh, Axe and Crown is the one uh, cooking vulture pie and mm-hmm. things. Yeah. So we just sort of decided not to. We just okay. We won't worry about that. We'll just make this game, this show, um, with this value in mind. We don't spend a lot of time. Like we don't lecture about it. We don't whatever. We're just like this is a world where. That's not going to happen. Yeah, the cheesecake is is uh, pleather. pleather cheesecake. It come, comes from the pleather tree and and stuff like that. 
We basically had to come up with pleather because everyone kept <laughs> the vegetarians at the table, not just both of us, kept introducing things that weren't that that had animal products in them. So we quickly came up with the pleather solution. <laughs> it's was, like tofu; it just I, replaces everything. I think that was Mike. Yeah, it's it's basically our tofu slash leather slash cream cheese. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, and we try not to be overt. In fact, someone might not even if they're listening to this, they might think. We don't, that's not happening. But if you, what I like about the universe is that that's exactly it. It's not happening. So you might not even notice it, but there is no cruelty to animals, or at least I think we try. There's we some try cruelty to flowers, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, zombies were really yeah, bad zombies, to zombies. Zombies, undead, oh, and trees, really which I get trees. really mad about, of course, yeah, really Dar- as Darcy. But uh, yeah, I think we just try to be, it's just there as a as an ethic, and uh, hopefully it comes through at some point. And I think we do try to minimize violence in general. Maybe you can speak more to that, Sean, but we, I don't think we have that many battles and when we do they are the undead primarily yeah it's funny because anytime we do have a battle the entire table at the end just turns to eli and they're like we want squishy sounds and eli <laughs> just is like you're not getting squishy sounds so um yeah i think when you say entire table you mean carter i mean carter and mike <laughs> yeah i as far as violence I don't, that's a tough one okay so we chose not to do D D. a because I've yet to hear a D and D, even Taz, which I love, um, that the battles didn't get monotonous um, and didn't have to get edited down, and even then weren't monotonous. So we chose a, a framework. Uh, we chose a, a you know a, a PBTA game, uh, Dungeon World, that uh, really fits with storytelling and improv. It's all about escalation, and yeah. and then we modified that further. There are certain things in the PBTA world that you really won't hear often, if ever. In, in our table, because I just feel like they just slow the game down too much. Um, so I was really trying to pick a storytelling framework. And then as we started focusing on storytelling, it, it, we had so much fun creating these stories and these situations. It was really neat to see that we don't always need violence. We don't need violence that often. There there are places for it. Yeah. And even the when you introduced uh, the Slod, which is an old D&D creature yeah. to, to our world as sort of the cannon fodder. Yeah. They quickly became favorite NPCs. <laughs> They're our yeah. friends now. Well, as soon as you said bye bye, bye bye, that was so sad. Oh my god, oh. <laughs> I was so sad for the slide. I know it broke my heart. We get attached to MP- to, to play to <laughs> characters. Quickly. The only one I've, I'm waiting. You know, I, I I will admit, David, I am waiting to the point where I, they have a zombie in their crew, right? <laughs> oh, you know, where they're like, it's Ralph. It's okay. It could be. It could happen. It's it's the whole Star Trek thing where the the Klingons are the bad guys in this show and they're the good guys in the next. Yeah. Right. Yeah, our table gets a little attached pretty quickly to anything that that has a personality and so trees, flowers quickly become yep. sacrosanct. It's very true. Yeah. And, and now they're main characters. Well, as 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 outgrowths of your personality, Sean, I, I you should you should feel flattered because they're really just reflecting on the fact that they care about you. No. That's true. You clearly You make the characters engaging. <laughs> You haven't seen me on my bad days, Damon. <laughs> so I, I want to hear about what it is that Laura and Steven do on the show, because I hear their names listed as the script consultant and the game consultant. But what 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 functions do they perform? Right. Like in the interview with Alex Hensley, you said, Sean, that Steven was the source of suggesting Dungeon World. Yeah. So 
um, every time we start exploring a new framework or new whatever, I immediately go to Steven. So we're we're talking about some test trial runs of of other things we want to run, either as a bonus or as what's going to happen in version two. Um, that's Steven. Uh, early on, Steven um, would try to help with where I wasn't following the rules, but I think he quickly learned Sean didn't want to hear that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because he, uh, when we were casting about, he had uh, floated fate as a possible one, and that we looked at, and then oh, a few a ton. other. He just kept bringing other, me books. It was great. Uh, yeah, the ones we gravitated to were were the pl- powered by the apocalypse. Yeah, Stephen was great because he just will keep finding and, and introduce me and give me options. Yeah. Um, we are we are in a room surrounded by hundreds of Stephen's games of yeah, the board game literally five hundred and thirty seven of them. Um, so Laura Packer is was basically invaluable starting out as well. So, and she's still involved. So Laura started out by really um, being the first sounding board that I had after Eli to to talk about the story, to talk about the arcs, to talk about the things that I was trying to um, prepare for the world, the mechanisms in the world and how they work. Laura Packer is an amazing storyteller, an amazing storyteller coach. She has a new book that's amazing. And then uh, for the first 19 or 20 episodes, Laura gave notes on every episode. And um, generally, except in one case, those notes were sent just to me. And you saw them once, Marisa. How would you describe the notes? The notes were great. I mean, honestly, they were very, very helpful. Uh, Insanely thorough? Insanely thorough. (laughs) Like every 12 seconds, there'd be a new time mark and a new statement or a note or feedback or like anything anyone did where they would use, they would not talk in first person, which is something you do in an RPG tabletop game, right? So it's, and it's not like Laura was always saying you have to correct all these. She was just saying, like her job was to feed back to me and say, where where are the points that weaken the story and where are the points yeah. where you're nailing the thing? So so I would get a, a line by line blow line of all notes of every episode. And then I would get notes like, it would be really great if Egerton had an emotional moment. It would be really great if Egerton had an emotional, it would be really <laughs> great if Egerton had, and so, um, and that is- I mean, he delivered have, one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Oh, and yeah. to this day, he says it's because I passed on that note. He's like, you asked for it. Uh, so, yeah. So, so Laura Packer was really instrumental in um, both the arc, but also in giving feedback on the story and helping that. Um, now we've sort of moved to looking at doing little sessions every once in a while. We haven't done one yet, but we're talking about just doing a session where we get together and work on our characters or something. Uh, we're still trying to figure out what's phase two with that. Cool. I guess to take us home, Sean, why are stories important? It's the, I've come to realize or believe or both, it's the only thing we can do to change what's happening in this world. If arguments worked, then I would be getting along with all the in-laws I've ever had. Um story and empathy are so linked. And I think we're seeing, or I'm seeing studies in, in a world where it it appears that we might be losing empathy. We might be losing this ability to feel what another is feeling. And I think story is our most powerful tool to fight back in a way that 
makes us all better humans, better animals, um, better co-creators in this world. And, and sometimes it doesn't feel like enough, right, David? Sometimes I get up and I'm like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm playing D&D and we're telling stories and I'm just begging people to support our patron all the time. And, but then I have to stop and be like, the number of people who have reached out to say, thank you to members of the Other Bothers crew because I wouldn't have made it. Or thank you to, you know, this work that you did. Or, you know, like when you, when you look at those stories and how heartfelt they are, or the tweets or whatever, I'm like, there's something here that can touch people. And I think if we become more aware of the lens that we're using and the, the, the meta that comes with what we're creating, right? The weight, um, the more we can try to use this stuff to create change that we want to see in the world, or at least create the opportunity for people to even acknowledge something different in the world, right? And it's just, it's sort of a segue, but this idea of comedy, um, you know, I think it's pretty established that comedy is not as respected an art form as other forms of drama. And I find that sad. Um, and so it's interesting to be in a place where everything we create so far, right, has been a comedy. And in some of the interviews we've done and the people we've on that journey, you know, it we've had to deal with this idea that we're just creating comedy. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. You know, and it's almost that stings even more than we're just creating insert any other form of media. And it's sad because I think comedy inherently is about human truth. And it's quite challenging to do and to do well. I mean, you can attempt to do slapstick, but to really bring a truth home and release tension and allow people to see themselves. That's where some of the greatest comedy comes from. Well, comedy is also the way to welcome people in in an unintimidating manner and then maybe show them something they hadn't thought about or it opens them in a way that I think other forms of art can't. Yeah. And then suddenly they're kind of realizing, wait a minute, <laughs> I've seen something different and I didn't even realize I was going to go there. But look at that. Here I am. So <laughs> I think it has that ability as well. Or so we hope. <laughs> This has been so lovely. Yes, it has. Thank you, David. Oh, thanks, David. Thank you, for, thank you for spending the time with me. If you'd like to support the work that Eli and Sean are doing with The End of Time, Alba Salix, and The Axe and Crown, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash albasalix. That's A-L-B-A-S-A-L-I-X. Or you can visit the Alba Salix store at albasalix.com slash shop. We are sponsored again this week by James Scully's podcast, Breaking Walls, a beautiful long-form show about the history of American broadcast radio. It's the perfect complement to our show. As we explore the golden age of podcast audio fiction, James explores the golden age of broadcast radio fiction. Here's a promo for Breaking Walls. I still think radio is probably the greatest entertainment medium ever invented. It made the audience work. Instead of a big, ugly glass picture tube, you saw the performers in your own mind. We were a family. It was a nucleus of people that you never grew away from. When I arrived, all of the WTIC people had started mm -hmm. and were working in New York and introduced me to different people. 
and got me at least into some of the auditions. I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Breaking Walls is the podcast on the history of American dramatic radio. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. If you'd like to trade promos with us, get at us and send an email. We'll talk. You can support our work on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And you can follow us on Twitter at Radiodrama. Visit our website at radiodramarevival.com, where you can read our bios, investigate our archive, and buy merch at our marvelous store. That's radiodramarevival.com slash shop. Line producer Will Williams is, as I said, not here, but they very thoughtfully pre-recorded this week's Moment of Will. Take it away, past Will. What was the second ever role-playing game to be published? Hey, listener. So, last week, I told you that Dungeons & Dragons was the first tabletop RPG ever published. But I asked you if you knew what the second one is. The second tabletop role-playing game ever published was not Dungeons & Dragons, but Tunnels and Trolls. <laughs> Tunnels and Trolls was... A new tabletop role-playing game that aimed to do a lot of what D&D did, but wanted to have a little bit uh, lighter rules. And you know what? More power to them. I don't know if y'all have read those early D&D books, but who boy, they clunky. But hey, listener, you know what's not clunky? You. I love you. You know what is clunky? The outro for this moment of will. While you're listening, I'm going to be probably at Podcast Movement, or maybe at Disney World. Who knows? Not I. Thank you, Will. And now, let us sound the traditional end of episode gong. The ringing of that gong tells me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation and the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe. Our theme music is Danger Dicky Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen, who, yes, edited his own interview this week. He and Will trade off, but he took this one. I think he did a fabulous job. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>